Hi, I'm Brian Pearson. This is The Mystic Cave. We were born before the wind Also younger than the sun And our bonnet boat was one As we sailed into the mystic Hark now hear the sailors The Mystic cry. Cave is a sanctuary for the seeker. Stories, conversations, and reflections about the spiritual journey on the other side of Churchland. Through the summer months, I'm offering something a little lighter than our usual fare. This is because I need to take a break from producing a weekly program, and because you might enjoy some summertime storytelling to take with you onto the back deck or out on a road trip. Each week, I'll be reading from How the Light Gets In, a collection of my short stories published by the Anglican Book Centre back in 1999. Despite my urge to do some major rewriting, I've tried to leave these stories pretty much as they were, except where I couldn't help myself. I'll release two stories a week, one on Sunday and one on Thursday. If you don't want to miss a story... Be sure to subscribe on whatever format you use for your podcasts. And while you're at it, give the podcast a rating. That helps spread the word. I hope you enjoy these homespun tales as we all take our summer sun. Pulling up tears. Jesus was a practical man. Don't hit anybody unless you want to get hit yourself. Settle your arguments before the sun goes down, especially if you're planning to sleep with the other person. Don't pull your weeds. They might be rhododendrons. I wish I'd known some of this when I became the part owner of a lawn care company. University gardening service was what we had painted on the side of our van. It was meant to increase the benevolence factor. Prospective customers were being asked not merely to have their grass cut, but also to help put a few enterprising young guys through college. What we didn't put on that sign, not knowing precisely the difference between a weed and a rhododendron, was our unofficial motto, if in doubt, yank it out. The thing I've learned since becoming a homeowner myself is that you shouldn't start pulling up weeds unless you intend to be at it a very long time. It's a job you never finish. And the danger is real that you'll end up throwing out something good along with the bad. Live and let live. This was Jesus' teaching, sort of, and it still makes a lot of sense today. Scott, my rector's warden, is one of those people who just can't let a thing lie. Last Friday, he took some holiday time that was owed him and stayed home to catch up on some minor home repairs. He and his wife Carolyn have no children, so their house is pretty tidy most of the time. But because they're both professional people, he's with an insurance company, she sells real estate, they don't spend a lot of time at home, and things tend to get away on them. 
when they invited the parish council over for wine and savories on Sunday afternoon? It spurred Scott finally to get at some of those vexatious signs that their home was acquiring a lived-in look. Scott rose early and got himself organized. He put the tools he thought he'd need in his carpenter's belt, several kinds of screwdrivers, an oil can, a hammer, a small tin of putty and a putty knife, a brown felt-tipped marker, an old rag, and began moving slowly from room to room, like a hunter. He silenced squeaky doors, patched tiny nicks in the plaster, removed scuffs from the quarter round, touched up gashes in the woodwork. Midway through the morning, satisfied with his progress so far, he removed his tool belt, made himself a fresh cup of coffee, and took it into the den for a break. He turned on the stereo to catch a few minutes of the CBC, a pleasure denied him in the office environment. He was just lowering himself into his big overstuffed armchair when he noticed something he had never seen before. Beneath the antique side table, the one that showed off the Brazilian mahogany lamp, was a stain on the carpet. It was not an obvious stain, more a dark patch on an otherwise monotone taupe expanse, but it was undeniable. He put his coffee down carefully on a Club Med coaster depicting sailboats moored off a sandy lagoon, and he bent down to examine it. It was an odd shape, fanning out from an indistinct center point, but with two straight edges that suggested a drink had been spilled with such force that the liquid had shot out of the glass like paint from a gun. He ran his finger over the spot. It had long since dried, leaving no greasy film or hardened edges. Scott went into the kitchen and dampened a clean tea towel with cool water. He returned and began dabbing at the edges of the stain. This had no effect. He poured a little club soda in the cloth and rubbed at the spot again. He tried a little more, applying the club soda this time directly to the carpet. It bubbled up, hissed, and then dissolved into the carpet's thick pile. Scott continued to dab at it, holding the cloth up intermittently for inspection. The stain yielded nothing. Downstairs in the laundry room, Scott and Carolyn have an impressive collection of cleaning products which Scott has organized from left to right according to strength. The window cleaner, a blue spray bottle, was on the far left with a large plastic refill canister in behind it. At the far right was the drain declogger, a powerful skull and crossbones concentrate of harmful chemicals that required industrial gloves, a gauze mask, and a well-ventilated room. The gloves and the mask were tucked neatly in beside the bottle, ready for use. He reached for the carpet and upholstery cleaner about midway along the shelf. The directions recommended he test it first on an inconspicuous corner of the material to make sure it wouldn't affect the color. He was to moisten the area with a misty spray of water, then apply the cleaner from about six inches until it rose in a light foam. He was to let it sit for three minutes, then remove with a damp cloth in light circular motions. Do not scrub, it warned. Scott removed the foam with the prescribed light circular motions and inspected the area. It was hard to tell what was moistened carpet and what was stain so he had to step back. Nope, it was still there. He rubbed it some more, this time coming dangerously close to scrubbing. Clearly, 
this was not your superficial stain. He went off to find the dampened dust buster, the cordless handheld vacuum that removes both cookie crumbs and lemonade spills with but a quick and easy click-snap change of attachments. He found it in its appointed place in the broom closet in the kitchen. He scoured the area on his hands and knees, pressing the nozzle deep into the carpet. It whirred efficiently as it sucked at the moisture left from the foam in the club soda. He could hear tiny objects being inhaled into the removable disposal bag, the common daily jetsam of suburban living, microscopic, some of it. When he stood up, the blood drained from his head and he had to wait unsteady for a moment for the stars to disappear before his eyes. But the stain remained. He rubbed his chin. It was a good thing he was home today. Otherwise, they might not have noticed this until the room was filled with church people. And regardless of how they kept their own homes, he was a church warden and the one with specific responsibility for the building and property. It was more than a matter of personal pride. It was a matter of professional integrity. He was damned if he was going to be beaten by a stubborn stain. The rent-away outlet was in a run-down strip plaza that had a variety store, a fish-and-chip shop, a video arcade, and several graffiti-laden boarded-up premises. Bunk, or was it hunk, Scott wondered, as he tried to read the applique script on the manager's shirt pocket— was leaning forward on the counter, blowing smoke into the face of a guy who was haggling for a deal on a jackhammer. His shirt sleeves were rolled up high to reveal menacing tattoos on both arms. Scott wandered away among the tamping machines and chainsaws, the two-stroke post-hole diggers and the one-man hydraulic lifts. A layer of soot covered everything, and the air hung heavy with oil and gasoline. He tried not to touch anything. There were, it seemed, two models of steam cleaner. One was the made-of-the-mist Clean Bee, a domestic unit like the kind you see for rent in supermarkets. It was cunningly designed with a clear domed cap so you could watch the dirty water swishing around while the hose attachment did its job. Scott considered this for a moment. It would be nineteen ninety-nine if he returned it by five o'clock that afternoon. But the stain had already proved tenacious— if this unit couldn't do it, he'd be back anyway, 1999 later, to rent the big industrial cleaner next to it. He might as well just skip that step and go straight for the no-nonsense Acme Industrial Carpet Cleaner at $39.99. That, and he wasn't sure he wanted to go up to the counter and say to Bunk or Hunk, I'd like to rent the Clean Bee, please. There was nothing remotely consumer-friendly about the industrial unit. It stood solidly about four feet high, like a gas pump, with no glass bubbles or aerodynamic styling. At one time, it had been rocket red, but now was scratched and faded beyond any semblance of its original aesthetic. It was supposed to move around on four casters, but the hose was attached at the top in such a way that only a fool would yank it forward and expect the red rocket actually to follow without tipping and dumping its dirty contents all over your newly cleaned broadloom. Maybe that was the point, a kind of revolving door rental scam that meant try as you might, you would just have to keep coming back. Still, Scott was hopeful as he struggled to get a grip on the unit from the back of their minivan. He hugged it like a bag of cement and brought it to the front door, digging for his keys in the pocket of his windbreaker, 
propping the storm door open with his leg as he negotiated his way through the doorframe. But just as he got inside, the unit slipped through his fingers, crashing with its metal wheels onto the floor and sending a large chip of floor tile out toward the boot rack. Damn, Scott muttered. He inspected the damage. It was a sizable chunk from the middle of the vestibule, the place your eye naturally fell as you entered the house and bent to take your shoes off. He picked up the chip. He could probably replace it, gluing it back, but it would leave an obvious crack. Damn, he said again. He placed the chip in his pocket and lugged the Acme Industrial Carpet Cleaner up the three steps to the main floor, down the hall past the living room, through the kitchen, and into the den. The living room is a room in process and, although furnished, is considered by Scott and Carolyn to be too sparse for entertaining. The den, by comparison, is filled with knick-knacks and mementos deliberately chosen and artfully displayed to express something of who they are. An antique brick fireplace is the defining feature of the den, with its weathered barn beam mantle that Scott purchased at a rural auction. It had been a steal, Scott thought, at $750, and it continues to bring him great satisfaction when guests admire the exposed hand-hewn ads marks. At the far end of the room is a corner cabinet with interior lighting that highlights some fine lead crystal, a few Royal Dalton pieces, and Carolyn's figurine collection. Closer to the entrance is the sitting nook, with its two large chairs, a compact stereo system hidden amidst some old books and hanging ferns on dark oak shelving, and beneath the window, the antique table with its exotic lamp. The room is painted a soothing hunter green. It took three buckets of water to fill the rocket's water chamber. The special detergent which Scott had had to purchase separately went in another chamber, and then the hose was locked into place on top. At the end of the hose was a large nozzle like the carpet attachment on a vacuum cleaner, only wider. It featured an awkwardly placed trigger that released extra detergent for spot cleaning. Scott got himself ready, planting his feet firmly apart, nozzle poised in the air. He leaned over and flipped the starter switch. The Acme Industrial Carpet Cleaner roared to life. The floor rumbled. The windows rattled, and the porcelain figures began to dance and twirl, clinking together inside the corner cabinet. Scott aimed the nozzle at the stain. Slowly, he lowered it to the carpet. As it came within about a foot, the nozzle suddenly lunged at the floor, almost wrenching itself out of his hands. It caught the carpet in a leech's grip and began sucking at it furiously. As Scott moved the nozzle over the area, the carpet rose up to meet it, as if some small rodent was burrowing its way across the floor. It was only with great effort that he could move it at all, jerk it really was all he could do, across the stained area. Back and forth he shoved the heavy nozzle as it growled and grunted, devouring deep dust and floor tacks that hadn't been disturbed since the day the carpet was laid. Sweat ran down the sides of his face, but the stain remained. His thumb found the detergent trigger and he gave it a shot. The nozzle frothed at the mouth for a moment, making a gasping sound. Scott gave it another shot, and then another, when suddenly he heard the sound of glass 
smashing. He whirled around in time to see the door of the corner cabinet swinging open and the Royal Dalton Terrine come crashing to the floor atop the anniversary champagne glasses that had landed only seconds before. No, he cried, extending his arm as if summoning the force. He turned back and tried to lift the nozzle from the carpet. It wouldn't let go. He leaned back and pulled until finally it came free, sputtering madly, sending him tumbling into the side table. His morning coffee spun off its coaster, off the limp sails and their languid lagoon in a dramatic arc to the floor. Recovering quickly, he lunged for the switch, hit it, and held on to the cleaner with both hands as it rumbled slowly to a halt. The house was silent. He was breathing hard. His hand still clinging to the unit, he surveyed the damage. Fragments of crystal and porcelain in the far corner. A potted plant overturned near the door. And a coffee stain now spreading across the carpet like an oil slick. Then he heard the front door. Carolyn had come home for lunch. Scott, she called out. Scott, are you home? I'm in here, he answered, trying to control the tremor in his voice. Is everything all right, hon? What's happened to the tile here? She came down the hallway. Scott? Scott, what? What's, what have you been, what is this thing? Oh my God, the Royal Dalton, no, not our anniversary glasses. Scott, what's been going on? Scott let go of the rocket, straightened himself up, and took a deep breath. I was removing a stain from the carpet, he said. Where? Carolyn demanded. What stain? Here, by the lamp table. It wouldn't come out. Carolyn walked directly to the spot. She lifted the lamp, and as she did, as if by magic, the stain lifted along with it. Was that the stain? Scott, was that the stain? Scott looked down, horrified. He was overcome with shame. Now, where a dull shadow caused by the overcast morning sky had played tricks with his eyes, a very new, very real stain appeared, it was lighter than the carpet, bleached as if by the sun, caused by industrial detergent and by scrubbing where there should only have been light circular motions. And in one corner of that stain was an artful archipelago in dark mocha. There was nothing he could say. It made for a funny story on Sunday afternoon. What else could they do but draw attention themselves to the stain that now dominated the room? But the truth was that while the champagne glasses and terrine were irreplaceable, one due to sentiment, the other due to expense, the carpet itself would now have to be replaced entirely, and probably the front hall tiles too. It caused Scott's lip to tremble, thinking of it. I don't know, but when it comes to weeds, sometimes it's better not even to get started. And when that fog on blows I will be coming home And when that fog on blows I want to hear it I don't want to fear it And I want to rock your gypsy soul I've been reading from my book 
How the Light Gets In, a collection of short stories. I'll be rolling out two stories a week in the Mystic Cave through the summer months, and then returning to an interview format come the fall, when we'll be turning our attention to views of death and dying on the other side of Churchland. In the meantime, if you want to get in touch, you can write to me personally at mysticcaveman53 at gmail.com. As always, thanks for listening. I'm Brian Pearson. This has been The Mystic Cave. But it's too late to stop now. It's too late to stop now.